All right, here's the issue. Some of you are like, dear God, I hope I get married in this room one day. Um, if that's what happens, if you, get, if you don't get married, understand this. You know people who are married. You will have nieces or you will have nephews or you will have sisters or you will have brothers. You may have a, who knows, who in your life you will have access to or opportunity with to say, here's God's design, here's God's view of marriage as he explains it in the, in the scripture. So this is relevant for everybody, whether marriage is something you've experienced like I have for 16 years now. Now, we understand that sometimes I get myself in trouble with things that I say about my wife today. As we talk about marriage, she just happens to be downstairs, so I'm safe. I'll be careful with what I say, all right? Now, you guys, if you really cared a rip about me, you'd be like, easy, boy, easy. Be careful with what you say. So I'm going to try to be careful, but if I go off the beaten path, it's your fault because you don't love me, all right? So that's how that's going to work out. So there's a few adjectives that I would like to use to explain my marriage. I'm not going to ask you to do that because that could be dangerous with your wife sitting right next to you, right? If I said, you know, hey, describe your marriage, and somebody yells out, a trap, you know, that's bad. All right, let's don't do that, all right? I don't like the fact that sometimes a wife is referred to as a ball and chain. I think that's demeaning. I think that's bad. I don't agree with that at all. So my adjectives that I say I think are real, I think they're honest, okay? And I would like it if we just keep it upstairs today, okay? So here we go. Complex. I think you would agree with me that marriage, if you've been in marriage for two minutes or whatever, you would realize that it is complex. And here's why. Because God has taken two sinners that he has rescued, you know, from, from an, a gross reprobate state, all right, hostile towards God, has, is, has, has rescued them and is sanctifying them in the process of rec, uh, 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 rescuing them, keeping in mind, and the reason I say this, because they're not finished, not complete. So God says, hey, I'm giving you a task. I'm taking you. I've placed you in context with one another, and I'm telling you to do mission together, to be a part of life together. That's what happens in Genesis 2, which we'll see in just a minute, right? He made Eve for Adam after all these other things were created, and he gives them these mandates. He gives them this mandate. He says, you have dominion, so do this. Be fruitful and multiply. He gives them all these instructions. They're expected to do this together. Well, sin defiled everything, but the instructions didn't change. The mandate didn't change. Just because you're broken and messed up, just because your spouse is broken and messed up, doesn't mean you get a pass on this whole whole trajectory of doing life together. So let's keep in mind that the rules haven't changed. The expectation hasn't changed. Genesis provides the template. It provides the standard, not just the institution of marriage itself, but the framework, the way it works, the mechanics of the whole thing. So I would say that marriage is complex. I would say it's rewarding, absolutely rewarding. I would say it's fulfilling. Not that, not that you fill each other's cup to the sense that you don't need Christ to do so or the gospel, but in a proper sense in our own humanity as God has made us one for another. I'd say that marriage is very hard. It is very hard. Lysandra, why are you hiding behind the post today? All right, so you don't want me to talk to you? Is that how that's going to go? I'd say, it's, uh, I'd say it's hard. I'd say it's fulfilling. I'd say it's frustrating. I'd say it's frustrating. Admittedly, probably more frustrating for my wife than for myself. She wakes up the other night and she goes, I... I've, I've been mad at you. What did I do? You know, and I really don't have to ask that because I can pick from any number of things, whether it's the messy side of the bed or whatever it is. And she said, and this is some of the complexity in marriage, she said, I had this dream that it was pouring down rain outside. You were tired of our couch. You took the couch. You put it outside because you knew that that's how you could get what you want. You put the couch outside. You ruined the couch, forcing me to buy us a new couch. And now I'm mad at you. She goes, I woke up mad at you. This is what I'm dealing with, men. I don't know about you. This is how this works. This is some of the complexities in marriage. So there's difficulties. 
I think marriage is a gift. I think it's fragile. I think it's very fragile. It can be. I think it's trying. I think it's exciting and so many other things. My wife often says to me, <laughs> she says, I love you today. That's how she says, I love you today. And I know what she means by that because there are days that she likes me and there are days that she absolutely does not. And you can tell by the tone of her voice whether or not it's a good day for me or it's a bad day for me. Now, granted, I know I deserve some of the dislikes sometimes that, that I get. You know, um, I think a lot of our marriage, if I'm just honest and this by my own fault, that my wife would give me a thumbs down. Not today, son. You know, not today. You're just not, not doing it for me today. Because I, I, I know that I frustrate. I know that I have all these blind spots and blemishes. But it's a good day when my wife says, I love you today. And you could just tell. I mean, she's happy to be around me. She really does like me. But there are days that she really doesn't. And I will say that where you must love each other always, you don't necessarily always like each other. You can't make that happen. You can't force this idea of liking. You can't force how you feel towards one another. You know, women, you, you, you can't help that sometimes you wake up and you look at the man beside you and you're like, <sighs> you know, again. You know, you can't help that you feel that way sometimes. You know, now you can choose to love. You can choose the way you interact with your husband. You can choose to love him like my mother always said. She says, you know what? Here's the reality. She goes, I make a choice to love your dad every day. You know, and I've told you this before, and it offended me back then. I'm like, man, dad's a, dad's a gift to you. How dare you treat your husband that way? But I get it. I get what she's saying. What she's saying is that, you know, uh, marriage is work. Loving is real. Loving is a verb. Loving is something you do and something you have to act on. So I get it when my wife says, I love you today, and some days it's just not a good day for me. So uh, I do want to say this as we get into this. I want I to, I wouldn't call it a disclaimer, but just a side note that this isn't for you. This is for those who might listen on the Internet. And I fully realize that if this is online, that it could be online for the rest of the Internet's existence. And I realize that some things I will get into today that the secular world will rebel against and will hate and, uh, and I realize that that could be found one day. I'm a nobody now, right? But let's say somebody happens upon this nobody and what I teach about God's design for marriage. I'm fully aware of that. So having that in mind, I want to say this. This is a quick word to fellow image bearers who are homosexual. I want to address them first. This teaching is not meant to be some juvenile thoughtless rant against homosexuality or same-sex marriage. And, and, and understand I'm saying this is not to become a juvenile, thoughtless rant against. This is not in support of. This is just not a juvenile, thoughtless rant against. But rather a thoughtful and honest interaction, what I believe to be the living, accurate, infallible word of God. I'm not a bandwagon Christian who crusades against anything and everything that cultural Christianity deems unfit for their worldview. However, I am deeply convictional that a truly biblically theological and honest assessment of the teachings on marriage leaves absolutely no room for any notion of same-sex marriage. It is my hope to make that thoughtfully clear with today's sermon, not by attacking same-sex marriage, but by promoting God's beautiful design for what is right and what is true. So if you will, open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 1. So let me just read, because we're going to refer to this several times over the next 30 minutes. So the context in Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, is that God has created all of these things. You've got the land, you've got firmament, you've got water, you've got vegetation, you've got animals, you've got the expanse. All of these things have happened. So we're at this 
crescendo of creation, this climax or pinnacle of creation, because all these other things are great. By the way, I have on uh, D- DVD and Blu-ray Paradise Lost that we got from the Creation Museum, or it, it's sold there. We got it at the, at the Ark. If anybody wants to borrow that, it is fantastic as it walks through creation and it argues for how and why these things could have come to pass. It's beautiful. It's really well done. It's thoughtful and narrated by Vody Balkum. So that makes it really, really great. So if you want to borrow that, you can do that. So we're at the creation account of man, the only thing in creation made in the image of God. So verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it he gives them a task he puts them together fit for one another and says here's a task It hasn't changed, by the way. God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the ground, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Thank you. Moving forward, you see the actual description of the account of creation where God takes dirt and he creates Adam and then he breathes into his nostrils gives him the breath of life and then Adam names all of the animals now this is critical as we will come back to this in just a minute so Adam names these animals and at the end of naming these animals God makes woman for man a suitable helper fit for him tailor-made For him, in every way, emotionally, biologically, anatomically, all these things, made for him. And we'll see that in a minute. That's what it means. He made a helper suitable or fit for him in a complementary relationship so that they can be about the task of what God has given them to do. And the maleness and femaleness of this complementary relationship is critical That's what it means when they're fit for each other. The femaleness and the maleness, the femininity, the masculinity, all that are complementary. They fit like like a zipper. They go together perfectly. Now you say, well, I've been married for 16 years. There's nothing perfect about it. I get that. The design is perfect. The design, the architecture of God's design is perfect. The framework is perfect. But we've sinned, right? And so we don't live that perfectly. If we move down, it says, well, we, we saw that God formed them and he, he, uh, he made woman for him, a, a helper suitable for him. And we'll finish with verse 24. I know I skipped some things. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So here's my objective, to see and understand a biblical, theological framework for God's design for marriage from the basis of Genesis 2, which I believe is the template, is the standard for marriage. So we kind of answer two questions throughout this. 
One is, what is God's design for marriage? And two, why has God designed marriage in this way? Two fundamental questions that we have to get right. We have to understand as a part of a biblical, theological worldview. But there's a few underlying fundamental questions that I believe are very important. The video kind of answered this a little bit. I'm going to expound on that. Where does marriage come from? Have you not asked yourself that? Because there's two worldviews. There's the secular worldview, which would say, "Mm, marriage came somewhere from ancient Mesopotamia, somewhere in the ballpark of 1230 to 3500 BC, something like that. I've read all kinds of information about that. So they're just, they're shooting into space trying to figure out, okay, when did this happen? Maybe this ancient Mesopotamian writing kind of recorded this, different culture, different customs. You know, there's different ceremonies that take place in different places of the world. There's different ways that marriage comes about, and there's different ways that, it's, that, it, that it actually happens. But I'm talking about the institution itself, not, necessarimon- not necessarily the, the ceremonial outworking of that. You know, in our Western culture, we, we're all too familiar with what the ceremony might look like, although it has changed a little bit. I just did a, a, a premarital counseling for a couple that don't belong here, but their reception was the Star Wars theme. I got invited, but we were out of town. I would have gone, and I would have been, I have to see this. You know, all the... All the, 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 the root issue stuff was there, you know, the, the, the vows before God in front of witnesses, all these kind of things, walking down the aisle, all these great things, but there was a little bit of a twist, you know, in the, you know, in the Star Wars uh, aspect of it. But you can research to your heart's content and find all these weird, strange, even crazy, you know, ceremonies that take place with a marriage. So there's a secular way of looking at this. And saying, okay, historically, maybe marriage started there. That's not what we're dealing with. Ours is a biblical worldview. So we go straight to the source, straight to where it all began, and that is with Adam and with Eve. Was there some ceremony? The Bible doesn't record these things. It doesn't tell us that, well, you know, we could say that God, we could say that the Trinity was the officiant. Fine, we can say that. You know, we get this idea of handing over the bride because God took Eve, his child, and he gave Eve to Adam. I'm cool with that. That sounds awesome, right? But marriage itself, the institution, God designed that. And he didn't just design the institution, but he, but he, but he designed the framework, the way it plays out the way it functions, and that's very important to understand because if you don't add that in there, if you just say God designed the institution because a lot of people try to get away with just that, and there are those who claim as same-sex attraction, as homosexuals, they would say, they would say, well, let me just say homosexual because I, I want to draw a line of distinction between same-sex attraction and homosexuality, but there are homosexuals that would say, I'm Christian, and they would enter into a Uh, what they would call a marriage, recognized by the state, wherever that's lawful. They would enter into that, and they would say, well, we're Christian. This is a Christian institution. You see, the problem is you can probably accept that through a secular worldview, attempting to sprinkle in a biblical worldview. You say, well, God God is the architect. God is the designer. God has done these things. But it becomes problematic if you start to say, well, God also, also designed the framework. He also created the parameters. He also said, this is how this plays out. This is the dynamic. These are the mechanics. When you start saying, well, God made Adam and Eve, male and female, and that's God's prescribed framework 
and then he commanded them to do these things. Then it becomes problematic for that secular worldview. So these questions are important. Where does marriage come from? It comes from God, simply put. When does marriage actually take place, which is what the guy in the video started to talk about. Now, there's three basic views of this, and this matters. There's three basic views, because if you sit down and you just ask yourself, what makes a marriage official? Is it the signing of a document? Is it when there's legalities that are involved? Because that becomes problematic because of all the marriages that took place in the eyes of God before there was any kind of legal system that, that played a role in that. Okay, what do we do with that? We don't want to discount marriages. We're sure not going to discount Adam and Eve's. There's the ideal. Well, what about when they consummate the marriage? Okay, uh, that, that sounds fine, consummating the marriage. That's when it becomes official. The two become one flesh. Well, what about those who cannot? What about for those that it just doesn't work, if I can be so bold as to say something like that in the presence of children? They're not really married. They're living together. They're enjoying one another as husband and wife, as companions, as being fit for one another, but they can't enjoy that aspect. Are they not married? Is it just when you make a covenant, when you just covenant before God? Because a lot of people want to say, well, that's, that's really it, and that's kind of where he was leaning. It's just a covenant before God. Well, my question is, what happens when you have two teenagers that say, you know what? We're Christian. We want to get married. Our parents would never go for this. Let's just go to the woods, hug a tree, say some vows, and it's legit in the eyes of God because we meant it. That's problematic as well, I believe, because I would have been married about 78 times in high school, all right? That's, that's what would have happened, right? So this is problematic. I'm not discounting the covenantal aspect because marriage is absolutely a covenant. I'm not discounting the legal aspect of that. I believe that God has put governing authorities, he has put these things in place as a means of grace when they're operating properly, of course. I think in that... Maybe you have this way of policing with the legal side of it, policing, you know, the, the teenagers that go out in the field and say, let's make some vows and make this thing legit. Go home, tell our parents and just live on love, right? That's, I get that. It kind of polices that. It kind of says, hey, there's some wisdom here. You can't be 12 and in love and say, let's do this thing in the eyes of God. And we're good to go. It's, that would be a horrific thing. I do believe that of the three views each in isolation may present some problems to consider. So I think it's wise, this is my personal conviction, the Bible is just, in my opinion, not super, super clear. Not enough for me to say, well, God says, here it is. Here it is, here's the definitive answer, it's non-negotiable. I believe there's wisdom when you consider all three. I believe there's wisdom in the fact that there's a legal issue that comes into play because it helps to keep from all those who would just say, well, all we got to do is say, say a prayer and mean it before each other and we're good to go. You know, um, I think all of these aspects, I think the consummation of things plays a role. I think the, 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 the legal side of things in the eyes of the state even, to a degree, to a degree, maybe play a role. And most importantly, I would say the covenantal aspect of it plays a major major role in these things and I'm not against our western way of doing it because we go and we have weddings and there are people as witnesses that say you've made this promise you've made this covenant and the idea is that they're actually going to hold you accountable but it begs the question with the divorce rate the way it is how many of those people actually hold you accountable men when you treat your wife like garbage or wives when you're dismissive of your husband how many of those people that love you and say we covenant with you Actually come up behind you and say, I don't think so. This is not what you promised before a holy God. 
That's why I think it's good to have that. Now, for those that elope, I don't think that that's an issue. But the issue is, if you're going to say, well, it has to be, you know, uh, X, Y, or Z, well, you don't have that ceremony. You don't have the witnesses. You don't have all that when you elope. So I'm not going to say eloping is wrong. Right? So I think there's wisdom in considering all of these things as it plays a part in marriage. These are just kind of to set up where we are. When does marriage actually take place? Most likely, official marital status is probably a combination of all three, um, but not necessarily within biblical parameters, obviously. So don't get angry with me about that. That's me processing and working through this and showing you that there's a lot to consider. I don't know the definitive answer, so I'm not trying to give you a definitive answer. So, But let's back up to what we do know. We do know this, that God is the designer, God is the architect of marriage, both the institution and the design. God made them male and female, and we see that Jesus talks about marriage in many places, but one, for instance, Matthew chapter 19. He says, what, what God has put together, let no man separate, right? We remember that. He says this, what God has put together, let no man separate. Jesus is operating from Genesis 2. Jesus, by the way, was there, in case we've forgotten. It was Jesus' plan in perfect unison and harmony with the Trinity who gave us marriage. So Jesus is just stating again what has not changed over the thousands of years from the time that he created the institution and the framework of marriage, which, by the way, which, by the way, is a very clear argument that there are no other means by which marriage can be considered a legitimate marriage other than male and female. Because Jesus is leaning on his teaching as a part of the Trinity in, uh, in Genesis, or Genesis 1. Sorry, Genesis 1. But I would argue that what God has put together is not just the institution. You know, I've officiated many marriages, many ceremonies, and that's a passage we often reference when we officiate these things. We say, what God has put together, let no man set asunder or let no man separate. And we say, well, that just means don't divorce. Don't divorce. You know, I get it. God says he hates divorce. I think that he's given exceptions for these things. You have to be very careful with that, but that doesn't nullify the fact that he still hates it because it's not the ideal. You know, God providentially decreed that sin would come to pass doesn't mean he can't hate it he still hates it but it's in this world not because God was powerless to stop it because he sovereignly decreed it now that gets very theologically uh, difficult real fast so we can have more conversations about that if you're visiting with us and that's like what are you talking about it's not heresy I promise we can talk about that it just means that God is so sovereign that sin doesn't disrupt his will or his plan so I don't think that what God has put together, let no man separate, just applies to the institution. It applies to the framework. What God has put together, male, female, masculinity, femininity, let no man separate. Let no man separate the framework because the framework being male and female is critical to the outworking of what it is to be in marriage according to the ideal. How can you procreate how can you do these things? How can you be fruitful and multiply according to the ideal? 
if there's other options with regards to marriage and carrying out this mandate. The institution itself is that it is a covenantal bond that provides a tangible representation of the inner Trinitarian bond as well as the bond between Christ and his bride. I will argue towards the end that marriage represents three things, the gospel, Christ's relationship to his bride, and the triune God. And I think there's really, really strong argument for that. So let no man separate the institution. Let no man separate what God has put together as an institution, but also the framework. What's the framework? A monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. You say monogamy. Well, we see a lot of polygamy in the Old Testament. And God doesn't seem to condemn that. So what's up with that? You know, what's going on? Why would there be polygamy? Why would Lamech and why would Jacob and why would David and why would Solomon, you know, indulge in polygamy in the hundreds, hundreds of wives, by the way, Solomon? And God never seems to condemn it. How do you reconcile these things? Well, I think it makes sense to think in this way that there's an ideal, Genesis 2. If you are unsure, always go to the ideal. If you're in your mind thinking, well, maybe polygamy is okay. Men, I wouldn't try it. I wouldn't try it. And I don't know why women would ever, ever be a part of a relationship like that in, in any way. Uh, I think it devalues the woman. I think the husband needs to be a one-woman man. I mean, that's, that's, that's what it says in the pastorals. But anyway, so what we see polygamy, I think this, in these situations back then in the culture, in a patriarchal society women were denigrated women were second-class citizens women oftentimes couldn't even survive if they didn't have a man I know you women don't like to hear that granted I get it that is there's going to be feminists that are writing me nasty emails not here but somewhere out in internet land I get it right I'm not saying that I'm saying this was bad but this was how culture was women depended on men to survive because they didn't have the opportunity that men have they didn't have the equality in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of God, yes, right? So there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a context there. So I think although it wasn't right, this is my argument, although it wasn't right for polygamy, I think even in its wrongness, not meeting the ideal of Genesis 2 and not following definitely the words that are replete throughout the New Testament, that God allowed it, allowed it probably as a means of grace for these women. You know, that's of all the arguments I've heard, that's one that I, I it, to me, it resonates and I see, okay, I could, I could make sense of that. But it's a difficult issue. It's a difficult thing to narrow down. I don't think polygamy is right. I don't think the Bible ever endorses it. God's not changing his mind. He's not changing his nature. He's not saying, well, here it's going to be okay. For a little while it's going to be fine. And then it's not going to be okay again. Because when you read the New Testament language over and over again, qualification of elder, be a husband of one wife. You know, when you read uh, the, the marriage section of Ephesians 5, you know, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, you know, and speaking to a plurality of men with a plurality of women, but individual marriages. He said the husband is to love his wife, singular, as Christ loved the church. He is to love his wife in this way. Ephesians 5, 22 to th uh, uh, 33, Paul speaks of the husband in a singular way, being the head of his wife. In a singular fashion. So God made one man, one woman, united them together as husband and wife. So I don't think there's any room for polygamy. We've already explained 
a possible answer as to why it existed, and it did not seem that God condemned it. But at the end of the day, God's the designer of these things, but God also defines terms. You can't stick a horn on a gray horse and call it a rhinoceros, right? You can't do that. You can't do it. You can't paint a horse gray, stick a horn on it, call it a rhinoceros. A horse is a horse, right? No matter what you do, that's a horse. You go out to Travis and Caroline's farm and you see horses everywhere. You can't go put something on it and say it's a pony corn. That's what Eleanor says. It's a, it's a unicorn. You can't say that it's a horse. That's an absolute truth. All right? Austin is a male. Nothing I do to him is going to change his maleness. He is a man. That's how he's born. That's how God intended. There's masculinity, femininity. These are absolute truths. Marriage, by God's definition, is man and woman. And that is an absolute truth. You can't mix it up, change it up, do whatever you want and say, that's marriage. Because it goes against God's design. It's a, there's a danger in redefining terms. The Jehovah's Witnesses have done this. The Mormons have done this. Progressive Christianity has done this. It makes a Jesus that fits into your worldview as opposed to your worldview lining up with who Jesus really is. And those are two very different things. And to try to make Jesus fit your worldview is very dangerous because then you redefine terms. And ultimately, you misrepresent what God's beautiful design is. And those are dangerous waters. The design and architecture of marriage is an absolute truth. Therefore, anything that exists outside of the biblical criteria for marriage is at best not the ideal for marriage and at worst, not marriage at all by definition. You say, well, what do you mean by that? You just said that nothing outside of it is marriage. How are there some nuances there? Let me explain to you. We look at the ideal in Genesis 2, right? The ideal. One man, one woman, covenantal bond for life kind of a thing. There's the ideal. Well, you say, well, that's the ideal. These are two followers of God. Well, what about two non-followers of God? Or what about a follower of God and a non-follower of God? What about those who the Bible speaks of as being unequally yoked? Is that outside? So do we say that's not really marriage? No, you can't say that because First Peter addresses the issue of a wife who has an unbelieving spouse. And guess what? They're called husband and wife. They're called a marriage. It's not the ideal, but it's still marriage. Okay? Polygamy. You would say, well, that's not the ideal. One man, one woman, it's not the ideal. So therefore, someone in a polygamous relationship, we will not say that it's marriage because it doesn't meet the Genesis 2 criteria. Well, you would say that because the Bible says that. The Bible speaks of Lamech. It speaks of Jacob. It speaks of David. It speaks of Solomon as having multiple wives, meaning they are all married to one another. It's not the ideal, but the Bible recognizes it, it as a marriage. It's not the ideal marriage. It's not okay to do these things, but it's still a marriage. But here's what the Bible does not do. The Bible never, ever, ever takes same sex and says it's not the ideal, but it's marriage. It never once endorses it. The New Testament, the Old Testament, like, speak against these things. And it never, ever, ever endorses the idea of homosexual marriage. And the burden for those that would say otherwise is on them to wrestle with the text and say, see, the text says otherwise. You won't find it. You won't find it. No false or forbidden union can ever be legislated into legitimacy in the eyes of God. That's a borrowed quote. Here's another one. 
Man's lust never determines what is lawful. Man's appetites never affect what God approves. And man's vote never vetoes God's voice. Why would the God, the designer, the architect of marriage, be so particular about this design? Why has God designed marriage this way? God doesn't do things arbitrarily, right? There's got to be a reason behind this. So let's investigate what that reason is. To answer this question, we need to take a close look at, at the Genesis account. So a few things I want to bring to your attention. We're going to read through these. Uh, I can make, cover some good ground here. The first thing we notice when we look at the biblical account, we notice out of the gate, God created them equal. God created them man and, man and woman, male and female, after his likeness. We notice masculinity and femininity as a part of God's design. We notice maleness and femaleness. The relational framework for a marriage is specific and exclusive to a marriage context. Men are never called to love anyone but their wife to the degree in which Christ loves the church, except in this marriage context. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to love all kinds of people. But when Jesus says, love as Christ loves the church, it's in the specific context of marriage. Men are never told to treat anyone in such a way as to prepare them to meet Christ as husbands are told in Ephesians 5.27. Men, you're not given that mandate with your best buddy. You're not given that mandate with a co-worker. You're not given that mandate to your daughter in these words. There's a specificity and a uniqueness when it comes to the marriage context. And I would say, and I'm going to be careful how I say this, with regards to masculinity and femininity, a fuller expression of masculinity and a fuller expression of femininity can only be experienced in the marriage context. Does this mean that you who are single are not feminine or masculine? No, not at all. But there is a branch of masculinity and a branch of femininity that can only be experienced in the marriage context. If you're not married, men, you don't have a wife to lead, which is masculine, right? You don't have a wife to procreate with. That is masculine. Not in some sick, secular worldview sense, oh, I'm a man, you know, procreation. Not that. But in a beautiful, design, God-constructed way. Likewise, women are never expected to conduct themselves in any other relationship like they are in their relationship to their husband. There's a specificity and a beautiful uniqueness in the way that women are told to interact with their husband. This is all found in Ephesians chapter 5. So that's one of the reasons that masculinity and femininity are a part of this marriage paradigm. And there's an aspect of femininity and masculinity that can only be experienced and expressed in the marriage paradigm. Masculinity has nothing to do with beer chugs, burps, and bench presses, by the way, but everything to do with operating within the biblical framework that God has designed. Femininity has nothing to do with attractiveness, which is subjective posture and poise, but everything to do with operating within the biblical framework that God has designed. And the world will teach you otherwise, and you know this. I mean, how many of you men in this room are like me, and you grew up, and your boys would say, well, this is what being a man is, or this is what being a man is. You're not a man. And most of it was stupid stuff. You know, you're not a man because you won't jump over that creek and probably break your leg. You're scared. Yeah, I'm going to be a man, so I'll die. You know, that's dumb, right? You know? I mean, you know, I mean, come on, you're not a woman, you haven't been in a beauty pageant. You know, that's dumb. That has nothing to do with masculinity or femininity. 
you know, masculinity and femininity have to do with following God's structured, ordered, biblical paradigm, whether it's in marriage or outside of marriage. That's what being a true woman is. That's what being a true man is. I mean, the, the, the biblical authors speak to women and they say, don't adorn yourself with all these trinkets. Adorn yourself with modesty. Character has more to do with masculinity and femininity than anything that's external. And I think it's important that we understand that, we accept that, and we teach our kids that because they're brought up in, 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 a, in, in a world of, of this is what being a woman is, this is what being a man is, and it has nothing to do with the Bible. It has nothing to do with what God deems beautiful, right, and true with regards to masculinity and femininity, and it's dangerous. So not only has God defined the framework and the institution of marriage, but he's also defined what masculinity and femininity are, and they're critical components of a marriage context. Men, you're never more manly when you love your wives rightly and you honor Jesus in your life. That's manhood. Women, subjecting yourself as a co-equal to your husbands, as an act of ultimate trust to God, is a time where your femininity is at its highest. And having babies, because we can't do that. That's pretty feminine, right? It's pretty feminine to be able to have a baby. That's pretty awesome. So we see that. A couple things just to list. That's the first thing we notice of this design is masculinity, femininity. The second thing to notice in this design is the oneness that Adam and Eve share. Genesis twenty two twenty four. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and they shall become one flesh. There's a oneness aspect. There's also a sameness aspect. So just follow me as I list these very quickly and we'll bring that to the conclusion. There's a sameness. Adam and Eve, Adam named all these animals and he found that there was nothing like him. Just imagine what that was like. I don't know. You know, exactly how long that process took, a day, whatever, but he's naming them all. He's thoughtfully looking at these and considering, what can I name them? And I think that God did this on purpose. I think he waited to give Adam Eve so that Adam could see all of these things and realize there's no one here to compliment me. There's no one here that's like me. There's no one here that's in my likeness. And he became painfully aware of that and aware of the fact that he was alone. Because guess what? The rhinoceros wasn't alone. The elephant wasn't alone. But he was. And God said, it's not good that man should be alone, so I'll create a helper suitable or fit for him. He made Eve, and then Adam sees a sameness. He saw a beautiful creature that he had never seen before. He's like, my goodness, this is better than an elephant. You know, what have we got here? This is beautiful. And God gave Adam, gave Eve to Adam. He saw Eve and everything changed. God made man in his image. He made them male and female, fit for one another. The fourth thing we notice about this design is the distinction. Oneness, sameness, uniqueness, but a distinction between Adam and Eve. I don't have to labor the point that men and women are different. All right, we'll just leave it at that. And thankfully so. The fifth thing to notice about this design is the dominion God gave to Eve and Adam. Genesis 1.26 makes it clear. It said God made them and he said let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over all of these things. He gave them stewardship of what God created and what God owned and what God ruled. But he said I want you to be my stewards of these things. So he gave them dominion. The sixth thing to realize about this account is that man was given the ability to create. Genesis 2.28 God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply. They're not the creator, I understand that. But what did he allow them to do? To create life, to procreate in accordance with the way that they were designed to complement and fit one another. 
The seventh thing we realize about this design is the complementary nature of their relationship. We'll teach on these role distinctions later in a few weeks, so I won't go into all of that. But know that they are meant for each other. They fit perfectly for each other. Eve was given to him as a helpmate fit for him, tailor-made for him. Women are tailor-made for men. Men are tailor-made for women. There's no denying that. You can just, anybody who's anybody can say, okay, there's clear distinctions, there's clear differences and uniquenesses, but they're clearly made for one another. There's strong biblical evidence to suggest, or biological evidence to suggest, women and men were designed to function at their respective biblical roles. For time's sake, because I'm bringing it to a close, I won't read what I was going to read today. I knew that it was ambitious, but we're about to be done. But I want to recommend this book to you. This is Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a response to evangelical feminism. There's also a condensed version of this that's probably about 100 pages as opposed to five or 600 pages. But I highly recommend, if you don't own this book, get this book. One chapter in this book they use the knowledge of a biologist or they use uh, uh, you know, uh, a scientist who's a Christian and says, as we study the human body, we start to see the intricacies, we start to see the uniqueness represented between men and women. And what they start to see are things like how men are wired to do exactly what God templated them to do in Genesis 2. To be out in the field, heal from, heal from cuts faster the skin is tougher. That's not happenstance. Men were out. They're doing hard work. Women store fat better. That's not happenstance. That's so that you can take care of a child. It's not your lot, and I'm sorry, you store fat differently than men. By the time men are post-pubescent, they have 50% more muscle than women. It's not happenstance. It's not because God favors us. It's a part of that complementary design for men to protect, to provide, to take care of, to be out in the world and, and, and getting cuts and bruises and scrapes and getting bumped. That's the design. This is not to say that women stay home, stay in the kitchen. This is not at all what I'm saying, at all. But there is a mandate, there is a role that has not changed, that has not changed. And we have to be careful that we never roles. Women see shades of red differently than men. Their vision, as far as colors, is much more acute. Their hearing and sensitivity to sounds that men wouldn't pick up are much more acute. Could it possibly be to see rashes or fevers in children? As God has designed women to be better, <laughs> to be better. You can definitely be better as a mom than I can, but to just be better. I don't want to say being a parent, making guys not good. I don't mean that at all, but there's a uniqueness in the way that you're designed, ladies. And I've got a whole chapter of that kind of stuff that I don't have time to go over. But just know, if you want to borrow it, you can. But I'd encourage you to get it and read it. And it's just one thing after the other, biologically arguing that women are designed for this and men are designed for this. And their distinctions create a beautiful compatibility between the two. And that's what we see in this text. So, and the final thing we see is that we see a companionship and a fellowship with them. So there's eight things I listed. Seven that I want to show you why they're very important. And why are these things relevant to the beautiful design of marriage? Because they image something greater than themselves. The marriage union between a man and a woman serve as a display for the multifaceted, complex nature of God. It's a pulling of the curtain to see just a little bit of what's behind. And I want to remind you that God said, let us make man in our image. When we say that God made man in his image, we mean God, the Trinity, 
made man in their image. And what we see here through the marriage relationship is that it reflects the triune Godhead. It reflects Christ in the church and it reflects as we go back through. We said that Adam and Eve shared in a oneness. What do we know of the Trinity? There's a oneness. There's not only a oneness, but there's a sameness in the Trinity. One God, three persons. One unified, one in harmony, one in purpose, one in plan, one in effort. All of these things, they are one as they work together. There's a sameness. There is a sameness. The author of Hebrews makes this point when he says that, 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 they are, that, that Jesus is the exact representation, that he is the image of the invisible God, all of these things. And that word image doesn't mean he's a picture of. It means he is the same. You and I are made in the image of God, which means we picture these things. He is the image of God. There's a difference in being made in the image and being the image. Jesus is the image, meaning he is God. There's a sameness, but there's a distinction just, in the hus- just as the, the husband and wife paradigm, you have distinctive roles. You're equal, but you have distinctive roles. There's an equal value. There's an equal worth. There's an equal dignity, but there's a distinction in roles. And for those that get ruffled at that, that's ridiculous because you don't operate that in this life. Do you go to your boss and say, you know what? I'm upset about this pecking order situation. You don't go to your professor at school who's got a Ph.D., you know, and you're scraping the barrel to make D's in the class, and you say, I don't like this pecking order. I'd like to teach the class. That's foolishness because you don't have the credentials. Are you equal? Yes. Are you equal in value and dignity and worth? Yes, in the eyes of God. But this position is different from you. There's a pecking order. There's a hierarchical structure that is right and proper. And the same thing is true with the Trinity. You have God the Father and the Son who subjected himself to God the Father. So there's a pecking order. While the same, they're equal. They're also distinct. They have dominion. Does God not rule all things? Is the earth not a footstool under the foot of Christ? Now? Yes. Absolutely. Did they create? Yes, we read that. Who else is given the ability to create? Man and woman in their complementary relationship as they reflect the power of the Trinity, as the Trinity created all things. And now man and woman can create Because God has designed it beautifully to do so. Man and woman have a complementary relationship, which also means that it reflects the complementary nature within the Trinity. And there's a fellowship that man and woman share. Maybe it's broken, maybe it's disjointed because of our sinfulness, but there is a perfection that happens with man and woman as we're fit for one another, which which is an image of the perfect fellowship that exists within the trinity so it reveals the reality of the triune god it reveals to us the relationship dynamic between christ and his church husbands love your wives as christ loves the church wives submit to your husband as to the lord the church is the bride of christ but we submit ourselves to christ so the bride in the relationship represents the church in that means in that sense the husband represents jesus he's not jesus you're not jesus you're not david all those fun things that people are saying now so you're you're not jesus presents that in that you are head, that you are leading as Christ loves and leads the church. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother. These are Paul's words. Hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says. But I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the relationship dynamic between Christ and his bride. But it also reveals to us the beauty of the gospel. Marriage is a relationship where two are given new identity. 
where you're brought into new family, a family that you did not otherwise belong to. And is that not what the gospel does? Those who were estranged